I'm Katie Brain and you're listening to Goodness Gracious Grief. Now, if you have been listening to my podcast, then you know I hadn't experienced grief until about four years ago. And although I experienced grief, I don't think I gave myself time to really grieve. And death is definitely something I am just not comfortable with. So that was my reason for starting this podcast and getting those conversations started. If you are new, then four years ago, I lost my dad to myeloma. He was a lot sicker than I actually knew. He tended to hide a lot of stuff from me. I was still uh, his little baby, so um, I only knew the minimum. Um, I obviously knew he was ill, but I didn't know how serious his cancer was. He was in and out of hospital. I knew he was having chemotherapy, but I was visiting the hospital nearly every day for over a month. And one day I was taken aside and told he only had a few months to live. And then a week later, he died. So I guess why I'm telling you this is because I didn't have much time to prepare. And I was my dad's next of kin, so I had a lot of responsibilities to take on. And after my dad's death, I kind of used this new responsibility as my coping mechanism and I just allowed it to consume my time and my thoughts and therefore didn't give myself that space to grieve. So here I am just talking about death and getting those conversations started in the hope that we can, you know, make it part of our everyday vocab and just make ourselves more at ease because at the end of the day, we're all gonna die. So this episode is really a recap of all the conversations I've had so far. Um, I have been a bit quiet lately, so apologies for that, but you know how it is and life just takes over sometimes. So this is a recap before we start having even more conversations. My first guest on Goodness Gracious Grief was Linda Magistris. Now, Linda lost her partner Graham to a rare cancer, a soft tissue sarcoma, in September 2014. Since then, Linda went on to found the Good Grief Trust, which aims to raise awareness of issues around bereavement and is trying to change the way in which people deal with this taboo subject in the UK. Here are some of the problems Linda faced after becoming bereaved and how the Good Grief Trust came about. I just thought, why do we not have a resource that can help the professionals and also the bereaved? Mm. Um, and I went to the, cha- the hospital where Graham was treated um, and they had every, I went to the McMillan office actually, and they had every cancer support charity um, going, which is amazing, but they had absolutely nothing for anyone who's bereaved. And they said, well, if you'd like to maybe start a support group, we could, you know, help you in, in that. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, <laughs> I'm bereaved, you know, I need someone to help me. Um, so it was all a bit bizarre. And I thought, no, okay. And then I started talking to all the major charities and, and it was literally through that really. And I thought, oh, okay, other people seem to be going through the same as me. And that was, I met people who lost children and older Older children, babies, miscarriage, um, you know, parents, partners, siblings, and the majority of them, because then I started doing a lot of in-depth research, had been through the same situation. They had not been signposted on day one to a choice, and that was my, my key thing. I needed a choice because what I was given was a very limited 
um, one leaflet choice. When you're bereaved, to pick up the phone is a really big deal. Yeah. To pick up the phone and to try and find something that's right for you is really exhausting. It's bad enough waking up in the morning and putting the kettle on, you know. It can be that debilitating. And that's what I didn't understand. It didn't seem to be recognised. It didn't seem to be acknowledged. Um, and I thought, well, this is mad. You know, all these amazing charities seem to be all over the place. You know, they're not in one place that can be simple, easy, quick, and and sort of really um, non sort of stressful, you know, because when you're going through grief, you've got to deal with so many different things, you know, particularly if, if you've got a family and you're trying to support young children or if you've got to sort out utilities and bills and, you know, it's just too much, you know, let alone the grief and the realisation that you've actually lost somebody and the person that you loved most in the world is sitting on your shelf in a pot or is under the ground somewhere. It's too much for your, for your head to bear, really. If you like to talk about death, then my next guest was the co-founder of the Death Cafe. Yes, Death Cafe. And her name is Jules Barsky. Now, Jules is the sister of Death Cafe founder John Underwood, and she dedicated her time to helping others have those difficult conversations. The Death Cafe model was developed by John Underwood and Sue Barsky-Reed, based on the ideas of Bernard Cretaz and his Café Mortals. Now, John read about the work of Bernard in an independent newspaper, and Bernard was a Swiss sociologist who said talking about death leads to authenticity. And inspired by Bernard's work, John immediately decided to use a similar model for his own project, and that is how the Deaf Café was born. Here's Jules telling us all about how it started. So my brother held the first Deaf Café with my mum and there were a few kind of weird ritualistic kind of things happening where they would write down fears about death and dying and burn them on a fire and um, kind of have skeleton pictures and that kind of thing. And my mum, who's a psychotherapist, said, John, you know, what you're doing is really good, but I think you just need to let people talk about death and dying because there's far more in people's minds than you can turn into activities. So um, together they put the guidelines together for Death Cafe, which, um, you know, is what it is now, uh, which is just a really simple um, kind of... Uh, set up really to to allow people this free and easy conversation over tea and cake. Was death something that you talked about openly in your family and and did you see the benefits of it? Um, We didn't particularly, you know, prior to doing Death Cafe certainly it wasn't something that we would have long drawn out conversations about. We come from a Jewish family and there are kind of specific ritualistic elements of the death and dying process um and then john and i both converted to buddhism um with him far longer than i have been um and there's a very kind of strong emphasis on death and dying and um you know it's something that you're encouraged to think about on a daily basis um so from that kind of spiritual cultural perspective i suppose there has been maybe more investment in thinking about death and dying than there would be otherwise and as would be as you'd imagine when you've got somebody who's working so closely with death and dying that does become part of a conversation more regularly but it wasn't that you know my mum was 
kind of free and easy talking about death and dying she's a psychotherapist and so she's she's much more open to having conversations about difficult subjects probably but um you know it's it's interesting that it came from the foundation of john studying buddhism that was you know where the concepts originated and why do you continue to do this um john asked me to do it um in 2015 actually he sent me an email and said Jules if I die before I put a proper structure in place will you do this for me and I you know I've been working with him on it since the conception of Death Cafe in 2011 um so I said you know of course I'll do that for you and now for me I suppose there is an element of um sort of feeling like I'm channeling him whilst I'm doing it you know I'm accessing his emails I still use that email address and I have people coming to me all the time saying oh I spoke to John and he said this to me you know he's really changed my life and the death death cafe movement has changed my life and um you know even prior to John's death I was really fascinated in the way that death cafe changed people's lives um and you know, the, the purpose of the Death Cafe is to allow people to appreciate their finite lives. And I think it genuinely does have that effect on people. My next conversation was with psychotherapist Gail Hamill, the founder of Circle Therapy. I wanted to know if there was a process to grief. Does it affect us all in the same way? Do those same moments reoccur and just catch us all off guard? Or do we grieve in completely different ways? I spoke to Gail and I started by asking her, does grief hit us as soon as we lose someone we love? I get asked this question a lot. Does grief hit? What's normal grieving is the most common question I get asked. And I always say, that well, actually, there is no normal or textbook way to grieve. Uh, grieving doesn't always hit immediately uh, because you can stay in different phases of grieving or different stages of grieving. Um, so, so for some people, it hits them very, very quickly. For other people, it can take a number of years before they really start to grieve properly. Uh, and it depends on the type of loss and the, the way the person's passed away. So there's lots of different elements why people grieve immediately, why people don't grieve. So I think that's something that's really unique to everybody. How, how many kind of stages are there when, when dealing with grief? Is there a theory behind it? Well, the theory behind it was actually um, devised by a psychiatrist in the 60s called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she wrote a book called On Death and Dying in, in 1969. And she came up with this theory of the stages because she'd seen time and time again patients coming in in different stages. And she thought this, this there's a pattern here. So she came up with the, what we call the five stages of grieving and denial being the first one, as you've said. And then we move through the theory as we move through different stages and each of them are usually at different points in time. So we start with denial. And then the next one that she, she found in her studies was that we move into anger. So we go from denial to anger. And it, the anger is really about the realisation that um, we couldn't stop this. The person has died. We've lost this person we love. Why did it have to happen? Um, what could I have done? It's not fair. Why, why us? So we enter, once we, we've realised it's real, we, she, what she found in her work, we go into the anger phase. 
So she started to identify these different stages of grief. Now, death is hardly unusual. Like I've said earlier, it happens to all of us. Yet, when you hear that someone has died, it's still really hard to know what to say to someone. Because we don't like talking about death, and it just becomes really uncomfortable. Knowing what to say and how to say it is extremely difficult. And I still struggle with it too. You know, whether it's a colleague who's grieving, a close friend who's experienced death of a loved one, we always just worry about saying the wrong thing. And sometimes, because of that, we say nothing at all. I spoke to Claire Collins, a bereavement coordinator and counsellor at the Marie Curie Hospice in Hampstead, and I started by asking Claire if she thinks we're still quite awkward when someone dies, and does she see people being avoided when they lose someone close to them? People still cross the road to, to get away from somebody who's grieving because they just don't know what to say. And I think it's, you know, there's plenty of evidence with dying the Dying Matters Coalition that these conversations aren't being had. People shy away. People don't make wills. People don't make provisions for after their death. It's like it won't happen, but it happens to all of us. And it's, it is definitely part of societal that we, we don't talk enough about dying. Talking about it just doesn't make it happen. Everybody's different. And I think there's no rule of thumb about how what, what you say to somebody or what you do because everybody's story will be different. So I would say it goes back to just to listening to, to what their context is. If you've had a fantastic relationship with your parents, or your, a parent who has died, and there are no issues from childhood that are kind of left over, um, it's, it's tremendously sad when that person dies, but you might not be left with some of the issues that somebody who'd had a very traumatic relationship with a parent had had. Mm. Um, so both people can be equally as sad, but one death can, can re-stimulate lots of issues from the past. So I think that the, the recommendations that I'd give to anybody is listen without trying to make things better. You just what we all want is to be listened to and, and to be heard and there is no right or wrong way to do that there is no right or wrong way to grieve but when somebody wants to talk listen to their story don't tell them what happened to you know a cousin of a friend of yours and what they should what they did and i think it becomes quite difficult for people when people offer solutions all the time and you should do this and you should do that i think that's the most that's the biggest gift that anyone can give to somebody who, who is grieving to listen to their story and um, in terms of what you can do to make it easier for them make concrete offers I think it's very difficult to hear that phrase oh I'm here for you you need to be quite concrete about what you're there to do or you know would you like to go for a walk on Thursday and if not Thursday when is it okay if I call you back next week if you don't call me this week what are the most unhelpful comments I know you said earlier I know how you feel and kind of comparing your story to to theirs what's just unhelpful and not a good thing to say to someone who's grieving well I think there are the usual suspects like um, I know how you feel they're in a better place everything happens for a reason God wanted them more than you know more than you did which is certainly not true time heals 
there's truth in there's truth in all of those things but they can be quite upsetting at the time some people will be hit by grief following the sudden loss of a loved one whether it be a tragic accident or a short illness but in some cases people can get diagnosed with terminal illnesses and have that time to face the idea of dying. I don't think we can ever say which would be the best way to die, but for those who do receive bad news, it gives them time to grieve their own death. In 2018, Diana Fishlock was diagnosed with ocular melanoma. It was quite a quick and shocking diagnosis and she had to have her eye removed very quickly. At the time, Diane did not see this as being life-threatening, but following the biopsy, she was told she had a very poor prognosis. And yet, throughout all of this, she has remained really positive. I asked Diane how her outlook on life changed since her diagnosis. You go through a process where you have to think about what was important to you, um, where you thought you were going, and... Most of us don't think about when we're going to die. And since the diagnosis, I think I dipped into my subconscious and thought, I think I was going through life thinking, I'll be here till my sort of mid to late 80s. My mum's still going in her 80s. I'll see the grandchildren grow up. Hopefully I'll see them get married. Although I haven't consciously had those thoughts, that was really in my subconscious what how I was living my life. That, you know, you have your family around you, you'll be there for them. And suddenly you have to accept the realism that you probably won't see your grandchildren grow up. So you start to reset those boundaries to, well, hopefully I'll live long enough that they remember me or I'll live long enough to see them start school. And you you actually put in um, things that are quite more achievable. So you think, okay, I'd like to live this long. I'd like to live that long, knowing that you don't really have any control over it, but it makes it more manageable in a way to think, yeah, this is my aim, I want to see this or I want to do that. Um, and you start forgetting about the longer term. You start forgetting about what you might have done when you retired or because those things aren't really there for you any longer. Um, your job, my job is difficult because I'm quite ambitious and I've loved my job and I love where I am and I'm not ready. Everyone says I should just retire now, but I'm not ready. To me, that's giving up. And I'm not ready to give up. So I've just stepped back. I work a lot less hours. Um, Very good employer that allows me to do that. Um, But I'm not ready yet to say I'm calling it a day. Would you say that that you are grieving for kind of something that's not kind of going to be the way that you thought it was? Absolutely. So you you don't realise you're grieving. Um, I think you... You watch your family around you and if somebody loses somebody very quickly in a tragic accident um, they are hit by this wall of grief immediately and they haven't had time to say goodbye and they haven't done this and that. I think when I watch my family I see signs of them grieving already because they're grieving alongside you and that's quite difficult to watch but they know what the prognosis is as well. And everyone tries to stay strong for you, but little things that your sisters say or your children say or actually, you realize that they're all going through this grief process with you. 
And then you start to feel guilty because you, you've put this on them, even though it's outside of your control. You don't want to hurt your family. Those are the people that you normally protect. And suddenly you feel that through no fault of your own, you're actually hurting them and you're watching them hurt. And that, um, that can be quite hard. And, and you then get quite hard on yourself and think, why have I done this to everybody? The people that will be left behind, how can you help them prepare? And I mean, is that even even possible or can you just try and make it easier for them, I guess? I don't think you can necessarily help them prepare because there isn't a script for grief. So they will all grieve in different ways. They will if there was if grief was a book, they'll all be on different pages at different times. It will be rare that they'll all be on the same page on the same day. Um, and what I hope is that they will understand that and accept with each other that they're all grieving at different times. Sometimes we get no warning about death. Someone can die tragically. And some people are even faced with tragic circumstances when someone they love is murdered. Now, Luke and Ryan Hart's story was national news when their mother and sister were brutally murdered at the hands of their father. However, since then, these two men have committed themselves to raising awareness and speaking out against male violence towards women and children. I have had the privilege to meet both Luke and Ryan, and I can say they are truly two of the most inspirational people I have ever met, and they are helping so many other people alongside their own grief. But here is how grief changed them. So I think um, there's a lot of things in life that you don't sort of get over, but you sort of move forward with. And I think grief and abuse and all that kind of stuff you don't just get over them and forget about them or forgive them or whatever you you change but often it's sort of a painful growing exercise but you become I suppose you become more calibrated to the world as it is because actually grief and abuse and all the horrible stuff that I guess we've been through quite intensely is actually quite well spread and covered across the world consistently it's sort of part of life um, so I think we've we've grown very quickly and, and as kids growing up with abuse I think we had to become adults very quickly um, and I suppose being young men having gone what we've gone through we've had to become even more mature and I think it gives you I suppose it's made me more candid like I just I tell things how they are because I realized that life's not about facades and superficiality it's about trying to do something with your life um, and the only way you can make change is if you're honest and if you tell the truth and if you are genuinely committed to something bigger than yourself. So I think for me, it's, it's I've always been, I suppose, a bit too, <laughs> I, I'm almost like or just old manish, I suppose. But, <laughs> um, but I suppose it's made me, it makes you think of what your life is for. You know, you're almost reflecting back on your life, even when you're young, thinking, what have I achieved? What I'm actually here for? Like, you don't care about a job or you don't care about that house in the suburbs, whatever, and none of it's important and you know it's not. And you, you think, well, actually, what am I here for? Um, and I think it makes you ask those questions, which are actually really important for living a good life. And I think a lot of people never ask those questions um, until it's too late or, or maybe they never do at all. So we've been forced to ask those questions. But I think in doing so, we've learned a lot about ourselves, which I think has made us a lot stronger as well. 
you you can tell just you know from talking to you for a few minutes how strong you are but how have you been able to to stay healthy and and stay positive even kind of when battling against the impossible I've gone through various stages of what what works um so obviously the first few weeks and months after the murders um just playing with our dogs and just I guess surrounding ourselves with people and 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 animals who made us happy just to get through each day was what was necessary um but then once I think I'd managed to heal enough what's helped me most has been um one has been having something to work towards um initially that was writing a book um and now it's I guess growing our you know um speaking business where we're kind of sharing our story where we're helping um working with charities we're helping to inspire others um that that's i guess one aspect of like growing something for the future that i'm proud of and then the second part is um doing things which i've always wanted to do which as a child um i wasn't allowed to so sports and and hobbies really um which i could never do growing up so I learned to play the piano, learned to skydive, um, I'm swimming and cycling as much as I can. I'm just kind of living that life, which, as Luke said, you're forced to ask, you know, what do you want to do? And I think for me, what I like doing is, is finding out the answer to that question and just trying, trying new things um, and seeing what I want to do and become, um, I guess, with my life. So it's a lot of experimentation um, and not being afraid to experiment, which I think is it's helping me move forward. Now, a job I didn't expect to be doing when I was 27 years old was planning a funeral. And I guess I just you know, stuck to very traditional things. I had the choice of a cremation or a burial. I chose a burial. I had the service in the church where we sung hymns and had a couple of readings. It was, it was very basic, but there are so many options that I didn't even know about and a lot of cheaper options too, but don't get me started on the price. But in my research into funerals in general and the costs, I have come across alternative services and that's how I came across my next guest, Kate Tim. Now, Kate runs The Coffin Club. A coffin club is a safe space to talk about death and plan your perfect send-off. It's a place to come and learn all about the options available to you for your end-of-life celebration so that you're not simply channeled into having 20 minutes, as Kate says, up the creme. So in my conversation with Kate, I asked her what did she want people to gain from coffin club? empowerment we want them to have knowledge when you're bereaved and you go to a funeral director um not all i will stress that fact we have funeral directors come and and talk at coffin club we are not anti-funeral director at all you know they serve a, a role and lots of them are really fantastic um and very forward thinking but there, there's also the situation where you are bereaved, you go to a funeral director and you are offered package A, B or C. You can have the bronze package, the silver package or the gold package. You know, and they 
may have things in them that you neither want or need and they may not contain things that you would like um uh, but that's what you're being offered and anything extra is on top um and at that point because you're bereaved it's very difficult to ask questions to think creatively to start saying hang on a minute why does that cost that much and uh, you know yeah it's not the time when you will be doing that so coffin club is about doing that ahead of time asking all those questions finding out all that stuff um so that at a point of bereavement it, it's all done because we go to families who are bereaved and part of their anxiety is not knowing what the person wanted and they want to get it right and they're worried about that but they didn't ever have those conversations because um i think as we know as british people very good at avoiding difficult conversations particularly ones that involve emotion we don't like those um so coughing club is uh, about that having those conversations ahead of time there are no laws there are no laws in this country around your end of life celebration there's nothing to stop you keeping a body at home for quite a length of time you know um there's nothing to stop you having your end of life celebration wherever you like as long as in the final instance you um dispose of the body correctly which means either cremation or burial burial can be on your own land as long as it's not near a watercourse it can be on someone else's land as long as they've agreed and it's not near a watercourse you know so all this stuff and we want to myth bust because people come and they say oh i thought it was the law i thought it was the law that you have to use the funeral director i thought it was the law that you have to have your service at the crematorium the first week people have that slight look of trepidation um but then they have that you know when you start an evening class you have that don't you you look around the room and you think oh god what have i signed up for <laughs> um but within five minutes they're really comfortable and sharing i think because kate and i we talk about death a lot all the time um we don't use euphemisms, so we don't say passed away. We don't, um, you know, use any uh, gone to sleep. <laughs> Went to sleep, but they didn't ever wake up again. Um, so, <laughs> so we don't use any euphemisms. We're very kind of frank. I think because we're not, um, we're not awkward about the subject. We give people permission to not be awkward about it. Yeah, you know, sometimes somebody might cry because it might bring up something. But, you know, that's life. I'm not very good about being snowflakey and something might trigger something and we've all got to be terribly careful. Um, we are careful and we're respectful and we set up in the first week that, you know, if anybody needs to go off and have a little breather they can do that but we're also very clear that we're not a counseling service and if you feel that's something you need we can signpost you to that but that's not what we do so i think people know well they've signed up for something called coughing club <laughs> i think they know that we're going to be talking about that um 
and then we just make it i think we we give people permission to talk about it we normalize it and you know it's not that long ago that it was normal it was normal to have granddad laid out in the front room it was normal to you know take care of these proceedings yourself it's become abnormal but actually it's not it's normal and it should be normal so we're kind of trying to wrestle back control i suppose in our safe space assisted dying allows a dying person the choice to control their death if they decide their suffering is unbearable but it is currently illegal in the UK. Being absolutely petrified of death myself, I find it confusing how someone would choose to die before their time was up. But at the same time, I think it's wrong for people to have to suffer unnecessarily. And I guess this is where the argument of assisted dying begins to become complicated. Sarah Fenton accompanied her husband Keith to Dignitas in Switzerland a few years ago. But Keith had wished he could have had the same choice closer to home. I spoke to Sarah and I asked her why her husband Keith chose to die and how that conversation began. I remember on the day that he was diagnosed in 2008 and we were coming back in the car from Oxford and he just uh, he, he just sort of threw in the conversation, oh, well, there's always Dignitas. And that it was like... You know, it was just a sort of flippant throwaway remark at that stage. I really didn't think that sort of uh, eight or nine years on that we would be going going down that route. And um, he he was obviously getting more and more distressed at um, losing sort of the ability to do things that he'd previously been able to do without problems. And um, he just knew what the end meant. You know, he was going to end up in a wheelchair, unable to talk, unable to feed himself, um, having everybody care for him. And he just didn't want that to come. I'm so glad I did it for Keith because, um, I, I'm, I mean, I'm with you. I don't know how he got his head around, oh, well, you know, as we left home, how he thought, well, I'm not coming back. I mean, what? I just cannot get my head around how he was feeling. And, you know, the day before, oh, I'm going to die tomorrow. I still can't get my head around that. I just think it was so incredibly brave and courageous. But then people have said to me, yes, but if you were facing what Keith was facing, there's a different angle to it then, isn't there? Or anyone in the last few months of a terminal illness to stop that 24 hours a day suffering, then you're sort of looking at it from a different angle. But it was just such a brave thing to do. And, you know, it, I'm not exaggerating when I say that even right up to the end, he was laughing and joking. And it was just, and it was such a dignified way to go. You know, he, he took the medicine, he chatted and laughed for a little while. And, you know, he would say to his uh, to his friends previously you know just see you on the other side sort of thing and he was just it was just he went to sleep and that was it it was a brilliant way to go i think you know if it could have been in this country the same thing with more family and friends around him because obviously it's difficult to travel to switzerland um 
then, you know, he could have had another couple of years of his life living quite happily with his new uh, outlook on life. But um, sadly, that wasn't to be. When someone dies, there are so many formalities and so many decisions to be made. When my dad died, I had never been in this position before. So the whole experience was very overwhelming. And all this is happening, as well as having to cope with your own emotional reaction to death. When someone dies, you suddenly become aware of all the assets, everything that person owned, property, savings, possessions, and even debt. In my situation, there was no will. There was nothing telling me what to do, which meant everything became even more complicated. And it was therefore the law that decided who inherited the estate. And I had to go through the process of obtaining a grant of probate. Now, having been through all this myself, you would think that I would have written myself a will already. But no, I can't quite bring myself to do that just yet. But I decided to speak to Jennifer Garner of legal firm Neves and I asked her if it's common for people not to write wills. There's some stats out there that say about 5 million adults don't even know where to begin when it comes to writing a will and about 54% of adults don't have a will and then 6 in 10 parents do not have a will or one that is out of date. So it may well be that, you know, people, there's a, there's a fear of when you write your will. I see this quite a bit that they, people think that once they write their will, they're going to die. And there's the fear of speaking about death because death is still a sort of a taboo subject. So people don't like talking about it and then don't like having to deal with things when they're going to die. And then some people just assume that everything's going to be all right when they've died and everything's just going to go to whoever they want it to, even if they haven't written it down. What kind of problems can not having a will cause a family that are grieving, what issues can arise from that? So if you don't have a will, um, it may well be that the people that um, you want to inherit aren't going to inherit. And um, the people that are left behind, they don't necessarily have the authority to deal with the estate. So if you're unmarried and then there's um, you're living with someone, that person has no right to deal with any of your assets after you've died and they don't have any authority. It would be then for the next of kin to do, whoever that may be. And it could be children, but it could be, you know, a cousin somewhere if there aren't that many relatives around. Um, it could also be that if you have left children and they're under the age of 18 in the will, you, you know, you can appoint guardians in your will. So if you haven't put that in there then there could be some confusion about who's supposed to be looking after the children when um, you've passed away and um, there's other issues particularly if your estate is taxable because sometimes there's inheritance tax to pay on someone's estate and if you don't have a will it, that could have been avoided if you did have a will of where you could leave your leave your assets. I mean, what I often say to people when they come in to see me because a lot of people they don't like thinking about it and sometimes I have to ask difficult questions as well um, for example that I have a lot of the time if I do have young families coming in to see me or a young couple who have young children one of the questions I often ask is what would you want to happen in the event of a catastrophic incident and the whole family dying together which is just an awful thing to think about but then in that instance that's when the intestacy rules come in and it may well be again that you know that you, their estate isn't going to go where you want it to go so I often say to people, once you've thought about it and once it's done and once it's signed, that's it. You don't have to think about it again unless or until another big life event happens. And then, that, you know, that's it. So once it's done, you're protected, you're fine, and then don't think about it again. 
So that is all the conversations I have had so far. I really do hope they've been of interest and have provided some insight and hopefully encouraged some conversations around death at your dinner tables. I have lots more conversations coming up in my podcast, Goodness Gracious Grief. So stay in touch and do let me know if there are any questions or if you have any topics you would like discussed. You can find me on Twitter at Eliza or follow the podcast at grief gracious until next time this is katie brain and you've been listening to goodness gracious grief